Good evening. Tonight I'd like to um, take uh, the opportunity that is uh, offered to um, talk about, um, I think uh, I want to talk about what uh, excites me about this practice, what I love or like about this, uh, this practice in different kinds of ways. And, uh, it might turn out that I'll speak uh, a lot about mindfulness following on uh, Rebecca's talk uh, last night and adding some things or repeating some things. And, uh, one of the first things that maybe I want to mention that I uh, that I appreciate a lot about this uh, practice is the, the safe container that we uh, um, actively create together here so that um, we can do this work of uh, opening the mind and opening the heart. Um, it's very uh, delicate work and it needs a lot of sense of safety to be able to do this. Uh, and this community here, uh, everyone, with everyone's participation, we help create that by sila, by our commitment to the precepts, by the silence we hold, the space, the solitude that we give each other. It's very beautiful, very unique to feel uh, to create that much safety. Of course, it's relative to each one of us, how safe we feel. Um, but one little piece that I wanted to uh, maybe add that felt important to me uh, to help create even more space for everyone to feel at ease here was to say that um, everyone here who's here now is totally welcome here. And sometimes it's not that clear for uh, some of us, like the others, they fit and I don't because of, you know? And the because of, you can fill the blank, what it is, could be for yourself. And it could be, uh, um, it could be a number of things, and I'm going to name a few just to put them out there. It could be because of your um, ability or this level of ability. It could be because of the state of the mind, of your mind as you came here. It could be uh, because you are here for the first time. Uh, it could be because the color of your skin, the story of your people, your gender or gender expression or sexual orientation, your age. There's probably a bunch of things that I do forget. But um, I think it's good for me, as a gay man, it's good to name this, to say, hey, uh, it's a good place to be. This is us. This is the village that we're forming together. And it's made of moi, and it's made of you, and this is it. Yeah? And I, I'll add a little thing, is I'm aware, as we sit here, that it's pretty white on stage. You know, it's, uh, we're all uh, 
of East, uh, Western descent, you know, and I'm aware of this. Uh, and I'm happy to report that next year, I'm aware that there will be a, um, uh, one person, uh, African-American, will be here, and uh, a person who was born in, uh, and raised in Uganda, and a person who lives in Sri Lanka. And so it, it'll be, uh, maybe we'll be able to um, represent the all diversity of, uh, of uh, human life and human experience and cultural experience. So just this little piece there. So there's a story that uh, I like very much uh, that I'm going to tell you. It's from the suttas. This, this um, young person, they could actually be male or female or somewhere in between even. Um, and uh, they're a deva, some kind of celestial being. And they have a lot of uh, youth to them and a lot of passion for uh, discovery or investigation. And they happen to um, run in, into the Buddha. And uh, their name is uh, Rohitasa. So Rohitasa comes uh, to the Buddha and says, uh, with a lot of, uh, of energy, some, somebody who's very, uh, I don't know how to describe them. I just like reading the, and I feel the character there of full of life, very um, genuine, very, uh, um, in a way, naive and open, and uh, comes to the Buddha and says, um, is it possible, sir, by walking to reach the end of the world, to reach the end of uh, disease, death, sorrow? Is it possible by walking to reach the end of the world? And the Buddha says, hmm, it is not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. And this Rohitasa says like, wow, this is amazing. This is just amazing. Like, I ask you, is it possible by walking to reach the end of the world and sorrow and insatisfaction? And, and you say very plainly, very directly, no, it's not possible by walking, by traveling to reach the end of the world. And Rohitasa goes on to say, like, this is absolutely amazing, because I tried. I personally tried. <laughs> and as a deva, as, uh, I have special, um, you know, uh, skills, special capacities, and I can actually go really fast. I can, I can go, like, faster than, um, so, uh, you know, if there's somebody, like, throwing an arrow, and they're very skilled, and they have the best arrow and the best bow, or whatever it is called, and... And if they were to shoot an arrow, I can actually, by walking, just go faster than the arrow. I'm paraphrasing the sutra here, but <laughs> pretty close. And Rohitasa says, and I can actually, with one step, go from the Eastern Ocean to the Western Ocean. And, uh, and I decided that I would actually reach the end of the world. So I decided to try this. And so I walked with my giant steps for a hundred years, and I'm telling you, they're very uh, candid, is the word, I think. 
So Roitasa says, and it sounds almost like a report, like when uh, when we come as yogi in the in the in the to see the teacher. And so it, the, the this yogi is describing everything like a, a very. Cl- clear report. So I walked for a hundred years. Honestly, I, I never, I stopped only to eat, chew, taste, uh, to, to, to defecate and urinate. Like I'm telling you, that's in the sutta. It reports everything. I stopped to, um, I stopped to rest and sleep a bit. But apart from that, I was walking, walking with the intention to reach the end of the world. And I never did. So I'm amazed that you, sir, just I ask the question and you re- reply very simply, it is not possible by walking or traveling to reach the end of the world. And so the Buddha adds, it's true that it's not possible by walking to reach the end of the world. But w- without reaching the end of the world, it is not possible to put an end to suffering. And I will tell you one thing, the world the beginning of the world, uh, the end of the world, the path to the end of the world, it's in this fathom long body. Rebecca said that expression yesterday. It's all within this fathom long body with its perception and mind. This is where you'll find the world, the birth of the world the end of the world. And you can replace here in this text, if you want, the world, the word world by the word trouble, insatisfaction. It's in this fathom long body with its mind and perceptions that you'll find trouble, the beginning of trouble, the end of trouble, and the path to the end of trouble. So it starts like very vast, the world and walking for 100 years, long distance, and it comes like right to here. And this is what we're doing here. We're engaging in probably the next uh, inner travel of Rohitasa, the turning inward and reaching, exploring, the world, its birth, possibly the end of the world or insatisfaction, trouble, uh, craving in here. And for me, and I had long periods of doubts, I would sit long retreat and I would have this cloud that would come sometimes for days like three or four solid days, it seems, of this big dark cloud of what do you think you're doing? What are you doing here? Everybody's like, you know, creating families and buying cars and putting money aside and living, I don't know, you know, building careers and you sit on your butt (laughs) doing nothing all day. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing? You're not doing anything for society. What is this? So these big, thick clouds of doubt would sometimes come to visit me. And it was so debilitating. 
until one, there was definitely one day I was sitting with this cloud, observing this cloud, feeling the heaviness of it, and how this mind state was uh, uh, removing all capacities from the mind, stopping the mind, you know, from going further, from exploring. And I, I don't know how it came about, but um, at some point came from really deep inside of me the sense that this was noble work, that there was nothing more noble to do with the human life than to actually look at it. Look at what it means to be a human being. How, what are the mechanisms of suffering? The deep, hidden mechanism of entanglement and what are the, and not just look, but live in them, live through them, soak in them, these difficult mechanisms, you know. Uh, and what are the mechanisms, that's one way to put it, of disentanglement, of liberation, what is in a way we could say wholesome and unwholesome, from inside, from a direct experience of it, of release, of entanglement. And after I had this uh, thought, that uh, this clarity, I would say, this is how I would like to describe it, this clarity of vision, that this was a noble work to do, I don't think I've ever had thought again about this. And this has been, um, what is the word? This has been um, reaffirmed, maybe, by seeing how this mind is learning how to cultivate more freedom and what leads to freedom and release slowly. And it's uh, uh, the patterns that create trouble for oneself, for other, for oneself in here, for others uh, in relationships, but also in community, in society, in a global way, in a very large way. And also witnessing this, this is where I'm, I feel extremely privileged and lucky. This is my job all year long is to sit with people and a lot of it is actually witness uh, people expressing in their own words their discoveries about freedom and what leads away from it, you know. And so I have great uh, appreciation for the work that uh, has been done here in the last six weeks by some of us and by uh, what we've started to do, some of us, in the last... Uh, somebody must know the number of hours we've been here, part two. <laughs> yeah, so... Mm. My understanding of what we do is that we're... Um, 
learning about uh, a technique, that's uh, certainly one thing we're doing, is learning about the technique to gain independence so that we don't have to believe anything. We're just uh, creating or training or making this tool that will have clarity, that will be able to pierce assumptions, preconceived ideas, concepts, dive under all this to meet the world freshly, uh, with clarity, so that we can see for ourselves what leads to what. I'm amazed at that. It's not a system of, of belief. You don't have to believe anything that is said here. You just have to apply the mind, turn in the direction uh, so that you get this clarity of mind that can connect with reality in such a pure way that it can understand exactly what is what, what leads to what. So, maybe just um, another, I'll bring another image uh, that comes from the text of uh, part of what is, describing part of what's happening maybe here. I don't know if you've heard this uh, image of, um, you have to imagine on one rope, one long rope, maybe the, the length of the stairs here, an animal being tied, uh, six of them actually, being tied at different uh, uh, length on the rope. So you have a, maybe a crocodile that is tied to the rope here. And you have um, a snake here, and a um, dog here, a monkey, and a um, hyena. Does that sound like an, a coyote? <laughs> <laughs> And uh, imagine all these animals uh, find themselves tied to the same rope. The crocodile wants to go to the swamp. The, um, uh, who is here? The snake wants to go to the grass. The dog wants to go to the city. The, oh, there's an eagle. I hadn't noticed it. The eagle <laughs> wants to go to the sky. The hyena dash coyote wants to go to the channel ground. Is everybody there? The monkey in the jungle. Anyway, there's supposed to be six. I'm a little mixed up at this point. But, uh, and so all of these animals are pushing in a direction and the other, and it's a big mess. Yeah? And so in this image that is used in the sutta, we say that uh, what we're doing now is we're exchanging this situation we find ourselves in with the six senses pushing in all directions. These represent the senses. 
Oh, I hear a little construction. I wonder by what date they'll be finished. If I usually decide that size, what I've seen in the past, and, and then there's a sensation in the body, ah, oh, that old, it's been there for so long, I wish, you know. And you go like this, and then there's a, something that crosses the mind, and imagine, whoops, you go that direction. And it's, that's how a lot of us live in life. We just follow in this, that direction for a while, and then in that direction, in that direction. And it's, um, it's not an easy situation to find oneself in. Yeah? And so what we're doing here, bringing mindfulness, the image that is used is uh, that we put a pole in the ground, a stick, very deep in the ground, and that now we find ourselves with uh, one rope for each of the animals, and that they will learn that there's no that the stick is so solid that it's not going anywhere. So these senses will learn to calm down and find rest for their own uh, sake also, that they will find, learn how to uh, find rest. And so that's what we're, uh, part of what we're doing here is we're not uh, following all the sense and sense impressions and contacts that, that we have. Uh, that's this mindfulness, what is doing um, one way that I like to uh, practice that fits, I think, with this image is um, I think the expression that has been used for this, the, to describe this, uh, this um, method, if, if I'm right, is called guarding the senses. And so the way it works in the Buddhist psychology it says that when there is a contact with uh, a sound in the ear or a sight and, uh, and, and uh, with something seen in sight or uh, taste and tongue, etc., mind and image, impression, thought. When there is a contact, uh, there's a concept that follows. Yeah? So I hear a sound and it sounds like a um, hammer. You know, it comes with this. And it says that often when there is a contact followed by conception, organizing of the world and naming of the world, there is also proliferation that can follow, especially if there's no mindfulness. And so the mind can uh, get lost uh, in a direction until there's another contact and another concept and another proliferation that can come. So as we come on retreat, often that's what we find ourselves in the midst of, the version of all the animals going in all directions. But what we learn to do is actually uh, keep, it, keep the practice very simple and stay at the point of contact. So that might be something that will interest you uh, in the next following days. That's something that I uh, practice a lot. Stay very close to um, becoming intimate with the contact at the ear door, the sensation of the breath, if I name uh, some of the anchors that we use. And uh, this beautiful practice of giving generously, offering full attention to life as it's happening, as it's contacting uh, the, the body with all, all its doors or uh, sense doors. What it helps uh, do for me is cut through um, the self, uh, 
uh, obsession or fascina- fascination. I don't know if I'll be the only one around here <laughs> plagued by that, but <laughs> what I'm going to do and what I think about this and what I prefer. And so it's as if I live a life with those glasses always on. What I, is my opinion about the person sitting next to me and how they should breathe and <laughs> the day of laundry and how much I'll put in there and keep for myself. <laughs> I don't know, the mind can, and, and it can be a kind of obsessed with self-ideas and selfing. And this is one beautiful way to cut through this, is to give full attention to the experience, the phenomena happening uh, here now, hearing. Somebody joining us right now, maybe. Breathing. And you see the tendency of the mind to proliferate on ideas or on sensations. And then the practice of renunciation, of letting this go. And I remember um, in the first few retreats that I did, maybe the first retreat that I did, um, somebody was maybe paraphrasing the the Satipatthana Sutta, the, the, the discourse that we use a lot to do the practice we do here. And I think they were saying, one finds a quiet place, uh, sits down, and put as a first value mindfulness in the forefront, as a primary value, presence, you could say. And uh, dropping, that's the sentence that really stuck in my mind, dropping all concerns for the world, all kinds of obsession about the stories that we tell, the invitation is to drop it, to just meet, Maybe in the first few days of this retreat, the experience in the body. Rebecca talked about this a lot uh, yesterday. So dropping all stories, and again and again, if we have to, to really come here. To me, the image that you see of the Buddha behind, with this mudra of touching the earth, as this quality to it also, of uh, when in the mind there was, in uh, his experience also, all these stories, who are you to be sitting here? Who do you think you are? There's no point in sitting here. You're not going to find anything by sitting, Uh, you know, etc. There's suddenly this touching the earth, coming back to something extremely simple, no, no, who am I in the world? Am I worthy of what will happen to me? What was I? What will I be? Dropping all this and touching pressure on the finger, touching the earth. To me, this is a, such a, a simple practice. It's amazing that this would be the doorway towards um, insight, revelations. I don't know if that's a fine choice of word here, but uh, 
discoveries about the world. Um, Spirit Rock, another center on the west coast where I uh, practiced a lot and teach sometimes now. There's a little gratitude hut and so it's this little kuti, this little hut with pictures of all the masters uh, that have uh, taught us or taught our teachers. And uh, It's a very beautiful, inspiring place to stop by when you're um, dejected be held by uh, uh, these uh, elders, male and female. And there's a quote there by Ajahn Moon. You might have heard this or seen it in the Gratitude Hut that for me is very, very central in practice. In your investigation of the world, never allow your mind to desert the body. Examine its nature. See the elements that comprise it. See the impermanence, the suffering, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. When its nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world will become clear. In this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. So the instruction, important instruction for me is in your exploration of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Ajahn Moon is a very, was known for, to be a very realized uh, master. So that's a statement I want to con- consider, you know. Um, personal story. When I was uh, 25 years old, uh, I didn't have any uh, Buddhist practice, any practice of any kind. And uh, one day I went to the doctor and I found out that I was uh, HIV positive. At that time, uh, there was no um, medication like there is today. Uh, So um, it was really a very... uh, um, strong shock, we could say, uh, to um, uh, even the moment I was in the doctor's office and uh, he said, you know, your, your tests are, uh, it's not good, you know, you're not healthy, actually, you're, you have almost no immune system at all. And that was not my experience, uh, understanding and perception <laughs> of what was happening. So there was a big, um, a big shock. Actually, the shock was, uh, I could say, a spiritual uh, shock. It was a waking up moment to the not-so-solid, the unsolidity of the world, I could say. Because my, uh, just to tell you a few words more on this, is my um, impression or unconscious belief was that I was young forever, 
I would not have said that, you know, but that was revealed with this news that that was the way I was holding this, that this was young and was going to live forever and, uh, and also was healthy. I was healthy. I was healthy. I was identified with health. And suddenly all this got shaken very strongly. I was given a few years to live uh, and then I was sent back out, you know, on the street. <laughs> and I was very much lost. And for the next uh, weeks and months that followed, uh, there was, it was extremely difficult to be in this mind because there was not much wisdom about impermanence, about things changing, not being in our control, uh, you know, and, uh, and so the readjustment, I didn't have references, I, I was lost. And uh, I had the teacher, a drama teacher at that point, was uh, for me the wisest person that I had around. So I went to see him and I told him, so this is what's happening and I, I don't sleep, I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, plus, you know, there's the shame and the, I mean, there was many levels of uh, difficulties for me there. And uh, my uh, teacher had done... Uh, gone to a war before and uh, he said I've found my place in a situation like you it seems in the past and what helped me was that uh, was to get out of the mind and connect with reality because the mind was a dangerous place to be and later I heard uh, Natalie Goldberg I think say uh, your mind is a dangerous neighborhood don't go there alone <laughs> meaning go there accompanied by mindfulness, you know. And so he said to me, um, what I did was that I decided to see colors, like be very aware of red for a few minutes or for some time, and then see green, and see, just to get me outside of my mind, because it was not a good place to hang out. And he said, maybe you could try this, you know, and see how it, uh, it goes. And... I didn't do the color thing, but because I had done a, a training in dance and movement, the body was something that I, I knew well, so I decided to actually be there when I walked in the street instead of thinking of my problems, you know? And so I trained myself to do, and this was kind of a survival kit here, you know, it was emergency. So there was a really a good incentive to, <laughs> to practice. So I worked a lot at coming back in the body, feeling the body as I was walking, feeling the f eating as it was happening, uh, feeling the body uh, laying down at night because it always wanted to shoot in the coconut. And there was no, it, it was not easy to, to make anything. There was not m wisdom available. And um, there's an in interesting teaching that says that when one is mindful, uh, the wisdom, even the shaky wisdom, even if there's something you just learned about, it's not integrated yet, but you learn that this is a wise thing to do or uh, something wise, it says that when there is mindfulness, the wisdom, even the shaky one, becomes available again. And when there's an afflictive emotion, 
that is creating, creating disturbance in the mind, even the really well-known wisdom or values, even if you want to say, is lust. We can think of this great anger, great desire will make me forget that there might be consequences to my actions or words. Might make me forget that I actually value respect. And, uh, yeah. and in the other way, if I bring mindfulness, I might, and this is the beauty of this mindfulness that I, I told you I would talk about things that I like about this practice. I can see this, that when I'm able to gain my mindfulness in an afflictive emotion, I gain a lot more than just being there. I gain maybe access, maybe, to patience, to acceptance, to friendliness in the mind, to hope that there's a solution possible. Uh, and so in the wake of mindfulness, there are several qualities that are being developed. So this is what we're doing. I'm talking about what we're doing here all day long. When we are applying this mindfulness, we're inviting the power of amazing qualities of mind. I mean, we could name the seven factors of enlightenment, the quiet, 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 quieting of the mind, the concentration, the balance of mind are invited, the energy, uh, curiosity, enthusiasm, the, and confidence. I can be with this. I can meet this. At least meet this moment and this moment again. Yeah? I could name the Brahma Viharas of compassion, of uh, the capacity to rejoice and appreciate when we're present. When something is present, precious, we don't go over it, bypass it, miss it. With presence of mind, full mindfulness, what is precious becomes outstanding. We're touched by a simple gesture of uh, generosity, by the beauty of nature, uh, by this capacity for a moment to remember uh, that I can be there. I don't have to push away what is being felt and difficult. Yeah? And the compassion is also born for me out of mindfulness. Actually, I was telling somebody today in interviews that one of the greatest benefits for me of this practice is that I learned how to be with the difficult in a friendly, caring way. So much so that sometimes I feel like shit. I feel like shit. There's maybe anxiety or something in the heart-mind here, pressure on the chest. And because of the capacity to be attentive gives birth to compassion, oh, it's not easy, Pascal, to be this being right now. This caring quality becomes such a beautiful container that sometimes I feel happy. Like I didn't get what I want. The body is reactive, is tight, is contracted in the heart. There's dejection, apparently. 
but there's such a beautiful holding, caring, that it doesn't seem like it needs to go to change in any way. It seems complete. And many years ago, I heard uh, Jack Cornfield say, um, I think if I'm right, there's always, always taking a chance because you know how the mind will reorganize reality. <laughs> but was, I think he was describing um, uh, compassion as a state of happiness, as one of the expressions of happiness. And I remember thinking that doesn't add up, you know, because compassion involves being with the difficult. And happiness, in my mind at this point, <laughs> doesn't involve the difficult. <laughs> it involves getting rid of it. But now I can see, touch this sometimes, it's like, wow, it's not easy being in here, but there's such a capacity to be with it that this is life happening without any problem in a way. I'm a little random here. I hope that works for you. Um, another thing that comes to mind that I uh, cherish a lot about this practice is that um, there's a not taking so personal what is happening. And there's a very precise way that I want to ma name it just now. Is, so it seems like my job part of it, certainly, is to be aware of um, states of mind that arise. And so that I can appreciate, cultivate the ones that are helpful, onward leading, and that the ones that are uh, bringing uh, distortions, wrong perceptions, difficult to feel, but also having an influence on how I see the world, distorting the world in some ways, I can uh, uh, accompany these mind states towards the exit slowly, you know. And, uh, and not make it so personal. I'm so like this, or I'm so like this. So, oh, here is this state of mind that is here. What is the appropriate response here? And um, this thing that I see sometime arise that I find so beautiful and I'm so thankful for is that sometimes I'll see a state of mind arise in somebody else. You know? In this practice that we do, we're invited to see internally and externally. In the sutta it says that. Notice your mind state internally and externally. And one interpretation of this is to see it in other beings. And there's uh, sometimes where a mind state will arise in someone and it's so not important that it's me having this mind state or them, or it's, it's not the way I understand the world anymore. It's just, wow, there's generosity. How beautiful is that? There's benevolence. How beautiful is that? Oh, there's agitation. There's insatisfaction. There's closing down. Here, there, not so important. How, what is the appropriate response? because this is something that we need to care about. Either rejoice about or help a company to the exit, you know. 
And so I've seen this develop with this practice. Um, and I think it's, uh, I like to think about this when I'm practicing here, that I'm not just taking care of this being, but it's opening this being, this capacity to accept, to consider what has arisen and how it can be uh, uh, treated, for lack of a better word. So as I'm talking about this, it's not so important if it's there or here, but what to do with it. Um, the, for me, the, what comes with um, sati or um, mindfulness is this um, recognition that we're, in this practice that we're doing here, we're, um, it's a different, uh, frame of understanding or it's not so personal. What I'm doing is not so personal. I'm studying nature, human nature. And this, this is very central for me in this practice is that I'm looking at phenomena, how f phenomena arises or what different phenomena create. And, uh, um, and so I think it's very important that we have this uh, right view as we practice. That we're here, it's universal what we're doing. We're looking at how worry, what worry creates in the mind, what landscape it creates, what devastation it creates. We have a, the chance to see this uh, in a very close and intimate way in this being, but this is not personal. You read suttas of 2,600 years ago, and people have the same things that arise, the same agitation, the same doubt, the same uh, insights. There's nothing personal about it. It's very important when we start to practice, uh, again now, continue practice, or however you want to see it, to remember that this is where we're, we're discovering human nature, nature. I even think, using images here, that uh, talking in terms of mind state, sometimes I find myself in the national park of fear, you know? And, or in the national park of uh, calm and peace. And so am I going to own this? Am I gonna, what am I going to do with this? This is uh, preserved land in some way or some, something like this. This is nature that is happening, the nature of calm. Let me get to know this uh, in the same way that I would want to visit a national park. It's like, so let me feel, feel this, see this. Uh, I think of it in, more in terms of... a. Savor, taste, taste this. Let's take time to taste uh, resentment. Really know from the inside the experience of resentment. 
not the story about it, the fascination with the object, but turning the attention the other way here and feel the effect of resentment or any other mind states, discovering it fully. And I truly believe uh, that there is inside uh, of us uh, with this mindfulness the wisdom that can become available. We can, if we touch intimately enough these mind states that I've been talking about now for a little while, uh, when we touch them intimately, that's how we can deeply realize that this is not helpful for me. This is entangling. I don't have to think about it by soaking in it. It becomes obvious on a and bones level that this is not liberating. And when I have full intimacy with another state of mind that is beneficial, I don't even have to think about it. If I'm in it, I will feel that this is for my good, for the good of others. That's certainly been how it's showed up for me. And so, for me, there's this commitment to actually know what is happening as it's happening. Know the resistance. Know the agitation from within. So maybe I'll finish with um, this, this book that maybe some of you have read um, by uh, Analayo, and it's uh, about the Satipatthana. It's a study of the Satipatthana Sutta, this text, again, that we're using a lot to do the practice we do here. It's a big volume. It's rich. It, there's so many details, and it's, it's just an amazing work. Uh, and and it's on this sutta, and it's a big book on all the ways one can understand this sutta. And uh, at the very end of the book, he says, again, this is from my memory. Uh, he says, uh, we could sum up this book or this, uh, uh, this discourse by using four letters. And that would... Uh, explain the practice or define the practice. So I think it could... Are you curious about the letters? <laughs> Oops. Time has run out. <laughs> My next talk is next Monday. <laughs> so the letters are KC, uh, KC. Keep calmly knowing change. So he says that this defines what we're doing here. And every one of these words are very important. The keep points to the continuity. 
this beautiful continuity of practice, of being there while brushing teeth, going upstairs, putting on shoes, uh, feeling the body, being aware of, or aware of the mind state. What is the mind state that is putting on the shoes? The mind state of rushing or the mind state of uh, connecting with reality? Yeah? And so this continuity of, uh, of practice. And I'm reminded of uh, a retreat that I sat where they were, every day they were inviting us to go slower and slower. And at some point it was like, really like, really slow. <laughs> And I remember I was sometimes feeling a little agitated and Chaz was one of my fellow yogis on the retreat and he, would, he was so slow. And sometimes he would just pass by and I wanted to like get in front of him in the corridor so, because he was so slow. And then I would say, get on his bus. Pascal, get on his bus. Let him drive. And I would let him go by and I would just get behind him, you know. And learn from Chaz to slow down. And one of the one of the teachers who was at that retreat would say, he would come to the dining hall at uh, at lunchtime, and he would say, ah, "I see you guys uh, oozing, oozing off or out or something like leaking. You you're leaking, you're leaking. Such beautiful practice you 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 do as you sit and walk diligently, and then at lunchtime you're just." Losing, you're oozing out. <laughs> and I remember hearing that and reflecting on this, and he was inviting us to actually bring as much awareness when we were sitting uh, to eat as when we were sitting in the hall, you know, in the, and, and so many discoveries that I made uh, by uh, bringing attention and not forcing, again, extremely important, not forcing but tending towards. Uh, uh, Presence, uh, you know, and and okay, 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 okay. Sometimes you check out for a little while because there might be some benefits to it. But when when at actually doing it as a choice, you know, that's the the thing about presence is that you'll be able to choose to go off or to stay. But when there's no mindfulness, it's just habitual ways of being, you know. Anyway, so keep calmly the calm points to the equanimity that we're developing, the capacity to stay balanced with the, the pleasant and the unpleasant, or the neutral even, maybe more challenging than anything. Yeah? The capacity to stay calm, uh, equanimous, with having what I want or not having what I want, with tur things turning not the way I wanted exactly. Yeah? So keep calmly knowing is sati, the mindfulness. Change is all the fluctuations that we see in sensations, in uh, pleasantness, unpleasantness, the fluctuations of mind state, of perception. I'm the best yogi, I'm the worst yogi. Get me out of here, I want to stay here forever. <laughs> you know, Keep calmly knowing the change of thoughts, perceptions, feelings, states of mind, change of moment, present moment disappearing, being replaced by a new one, the change of the quality of consciousness, but the new consciousness, consciousness of feeling feet now, consciousness of hearing, just seeing this, KC, KC. Ou, en français, 
C, 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 C. Continuez calmement à connaître le changement. Thank you very much for your attention. Maybe we take uh, just a moment to um, feel what it is to be a human being right now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.